you have a copy of God's Word, please join me in the book of Matthew, Matthew 19 this morning, Matthew chapter 19. We have been journeying through a series called Ducks in a Row, a very cute, is what I was going for, a cute series um, on how to have Christ-centered priorities in our life. Before we do that, I want to brag on our church. Um, yesterday or last week, I got a text from someone who, who went to Publix, a local grocery store, after church. And I had mentioned, I said, look, 80% of people in our nation will go to worship if you invite them. And if you tell them, I will meet you at the door. So they go to grocery store and they try this out and they, they messaged me after church. They said, look, I went and invited this person. They said, someone from your church just asked me the same thing. Um, keep reaching out. Keep inviting. There are so many people in our neighborhoods and in the stores we visit that do not know Jesus. And may we share the good news. And may we live as people who have Christ-centered priorities. And this morning, we're going to look at what, what a Christ-centered economic is. Now, some, some of you are saying that's an adjective, it's not a noun. It's an ancient archaic noun, okay? So I can say that. So a Christ-centered economic. What does it look like to give for the glory of God? I want to begin with a story. Tim Keller in his book, Prodigal God, relates this about a story of self-centered giving. So there was a, a farmer, and the farmer one day went out to his garden, and he was a carrot farmer. And he found the largest, most beautiful carrot that he had ever grown. And he looked at this carrot and he said, this is a world record carrot. There will never be a carrot like this on earth. And he said, this is what I want to do. I love the king who, is, who I am serving under. I want to give this to the king. And so he brings a carrot to the king. He says, king, this is the greatest carrot I have ever grown. And I will never grow another one like it, and I want to give this to you. And so he lays it down at the foot of the king's throne, and he walks away. And as he is exiting the throne room, the king says, wait, don't go. The king, discerning his heart, said this, I see you are a faithful servant, and I have a plot of land right next door to yours. And I want to give this land to you, because I know you are a good and faithful servant. A nobleman in the court at this time hears what's going on and thinks to himself, if this is what the king does for a carrot, how much greater will the reward be for a good gift? So the next day, this nobleman brings a beautiful black stallion to the king. This, the nobleman is a horse breeder. And he says, this is the best horse I have bred. This is the greatest stallion in the kingdom. And so he brings it to the king, and he brings it to the throne of the king and says, King, this is a horse. This is the best horse I have ever had in my stables. I will give it to you. And the king says, thank you, and allows the man to leave. The nobleman gets to the back door, and the king, sensing again his heart, says, Stop, nobleman. And the nobleman turns around, and the king says, you wonder why I did not give you more. And the nobleman says, well, yes, king, I, I, I wonder. 
The man who gave you a carrot received a reward, and I get nothing. And the king says this. I want you to let these words penetrate your heart right now. Because there's a big difference. The farmer gave me a carrot. But nobleman, you gave yourself a horse. There's a difference in the way that we give. And when we give to the Lord, are we giving ourselves something with hopes in return? Are we giving something to the risen king? At your feet, I lay me down. Let's read a familiar passage in Matthew chapter 19. You'll need your Bibles. This is living truth to us. So if you have a physical Bible or if you have an electronic Bible, um, I encourage you to open them up today. Matthew chapter 19. Are we giving the king our gifts? Are we giving ourselves the gifts? Matthew 19, beginning in verse 16. So just then someone came up and asked Jesus, teacher. Now, remember that word. He said, teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Why do you ask me what is good? Jesus said to him. There is only one who is good. And if you want to enter eternal life, keep the commandments. And so a a great follow-up question was, well, which ones? This is Jesus' response. Jesus answered him, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. And do not bear false witness or lie. Honor your father and mother. And all the parents said, amen. And love your neighbors as yourself. And the young man told him, I have kept all of these. What do I still lack? Now, circle that. Because Jesus says, do these. The young man says, I've done all that. And then he still understands, but I lack something. If you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, sell your belongings and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard that, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. This morning, may the Lord Jesus Christ root in our lives an eternal desire to give everything to him. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would change our hearts. Well, we have read your holy, unfailing, perfect word. Lord, the word that you have given us to know you, not just as good words to live by, but to know that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Lord, Father, help us gracefully submit to you today. Lord, help us be generous givers, that we live in a way where everything that we have is yours. To the glory of the Father forever and ever. Amen. And amen. The first question I want us to ask is is this. When we look at this scripture, um, the question should be, could this man be me? So just just say that out loud. Could this be me? Right? Could this be me? Now, because sometimes we read God's word and we think, well, this this is an ancient word and this is a rich young man and I'm not even a man, I'm a female, so I can just dismiss this. But there are very specific parallels to our lives and we're about to get 
in deep and get to work. So this is what we know about this man. He is young. He is rich. He is a ruler. This is a man that we would want to marry our daughter. This is a man you want your kid hanging out with. Right? He's, he's churched. He's seeking Jesus. He's influential. He's young. He has money. Like, this is the man that people want to be. So let me, let me make sense of this right now. Let me rephrase it in a contemporary language. This is a middle-class Baptist deacon who is a millennial who wanted to hear from Jesus, so he journeyed to Israel. Make sense now? So let's unpack who this man is. Could this man be me? One, we know that he is, he is young. This man is a young man. Um, young in the ancient culture here meant 20 to 40. So 40 was the upper limit of being a young man. So if you're 40 years old, you're still young. Rejoice. Thank God for that. Um, not only is he young, but we know that he went away sad. Why did he go away sad in verse 22? Because he had many possessions. So here is where we get into a messy situation. Who in here has many possessions? Many meaning two or more. Okay, see the struggle now? Because we want this man to be we want this man to be Steph Curry, right? The best basketball player right now. We want him to be rich and famous and awesome. Like we want this man to be a CEO. And so, of course, we can't be him. And so Jesus, of course, would not ask us what he is asking of this man. Like we want this guy to be Mayweather, who earned $100 million plus million last night in about an hour. Let that sink in. $100 million dollars. I would let anyone in the world beat me up for $100 million. I would. I wouldn't even last around. I don't care. I, I know I'm going to lose. I'm not trying to bring honor to my family. Right? There's just, just, I'm just going to let you, you know, let this not me. Just please go ahead and get it over with. Um, that's a lot of money. But this man was not rich in his capacity. More than likely, he was part of the small middle class in ancient Israel. Now it's hitting home, isn't it? So he's young, and he's part of the middle class. So he has some, but he's not so wealthy that people cannot relate. He's also, we know from Luke especially, that he is a ruler. Now again, we want him to be a Saudi prince. We want him to be this oil baron who's come to Jesus and he is the world's most influential person. No, he's more likely a leader in one of the local churches, a synagogue. So he's young, he's middle class, and he's influential in his church. We also know that he's a seeker of Jesus Christ. You say, well, pastor, um, how do you know he's a seeker of Christ? Look at verse 16. The man came up and asked Jesus... Teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Um, so he's seeking Christ. Now, is there anything wrong with being young? The answer is no. Is there anything wrong with being old? No, you should be thankful because God's been gracious to you. Um, is there anything wrong with being influential? No. Is there anything wrong or spiritually depraved of being rich or wealthy or middle class? 
No, because you live in America. So by the world standards, you have much. All of us. And this man comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, now if you've been with us for several weeks, you know in Scripture that those who do not yet know Jesus call him a teacher. Those who use the word teacher mean they have an inadequate understanding of who Jesus is in that moment. It is not enough to call Jesus teacher. Now, we should let that sink into our hearts because it's not enough for us to say, well, what would Jesus do? A teacher is someone that gives good lessons. It's not enough for us to say, good teacher, let me be like Jesus. No, we must say, you are master, which is a word of submission. Do you call him teacher or do you call him master? We also see this about this young man. He represents most of us in this room. So, Pastor, I couldn't believe you said that. Um, Think about this. This young man is seeking Jesus. He is trying to live a good life. And he, deep down, he knows that something is missing in his life. And even more than that, he wants purpose And he is in a place of comfort and safety. And yet he comes to Jesus and says, I want more. He's like, Jesus, I got a good house. And I have an awesome marriage. And my kids, they're really good. And look, I'm on a fast track to being retired when I'm 55. But Lord, there's something more here. This man is asking, asking awesome questions. And yet there's something more that he needs. So we should ask, is this us this morning. Could this be me? Now look at the question this young man asked. What an awesome question, by the way. Verse 16, he says this, teacher, what must I, listen to the language, right? It's intentional. What must I do to have eternal life? Um, What an awesome, fabulous question. I wish people came up to me every day and asked a pastor, what must I do to have eternal life? That's a softball. That's like, I'm about to knock this out of the park. If I can't answer that, I shouldn't be a preacher. But look at the language he uses. What must I do? That's a question we ask, isn't it? We come to Jesus and say, Jesus, tell me, what must I do? Because I'm an American, so I do We are in a me-do part of our lives at our home. We have a a two-and-a-half-year-old. She is the baby, so she has an older brother, and she wants to do everything that she sees him do, good or bad, which means we have a lot of fights in our home. We have a lot of discipline in our home. We have a lot of spilled cups in our home. We have a lot of accidents in our home. Why? Because me do. I don't want you to pour the milk. Me do. I don't need your help coming down the stairs. Me do. But how often in our lives do we come to God and say, God, me do. Jesus, teacher, me do. Tell me what I must do what me do. Notice, Jesus has every opportunity to just crush this man's me do false narrative and false religion. 
And what does Jesus not do here? Look at, look at the answer from Jesus. Like he, has, he has every answer to just crush this guy. In verse 17, he says, Why do you ask me about what is good? Now, who is Jesus? He is God, right? Someone just said, he is God. Does Jesus, is he asking the question for informational purposes? No, he knows. But he's asking the question to, to peer into the heart of this man. And so I just want to comfort you right now. Some of you have questions that you know God doesn't like. Some of you are, are me-do people right now. If we're honest, all of us have parts in our life where we are me-do people. And here is the, the great patience of the Savior. If you come to him with an incorrect view and honesty, he will be patient and loving, and he will turn your heart. So if you do not believe yet, I want you to know um, you, you have a safe place here to ask questions of God. We're not going to say, how dare you not believe? Um, our God is greater than our unbelief. If that wasn't the case, I wouldn't be here because there was a time in my life where I didn't believe and God just laughed at my unbelief. Like, Pastor, you're foolish. Right? The cross is, is foolishness to those who don't believe and it was foolishness to me. But to those who know the goodness of Jesus, oh, what a wonderful story is the cross of Jesus Christ. But notice what this man, notice what Jesus does do for the man. So he does not crush him in that moment, but he lets him evaluate himself by his standard. So Jesus um, just throws him some bones. I believe Jesus, he doesn't use all the commandments, so he gives him some commands, I believe, that he knows he's already kept. So this man is living a me-do life. Look at verse 18. He says, well, which commands, Lord? And Jesus answered, okay, don't murder. He's like, got it. Check. Nailed it. Um, do not commit adultery. He's like, that's awesome. Two for two. Um, do not steal. He's like, I haven't stolen anything. This is perfect. Uh, do not lie. He's like, look, I'm an honest guy. Um, I don't lie. He's honor your father and mother. Now, this, this is a little shaky, okay? Um, but he said, you know, obviously the man is thinking, well, I've honored them. And then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man says, says what? I have kept all these. Again, Jesus doesn't say, you liar. He just lets the man think. And the young man says, but, but Jesus, there's something else. Jesus has let him evaluate himself by his standards. So let me just say this in our lives. If you have come here today and you think I am good because of my standard, you're not even good by your standard. I don't even live up to the, the poor standard I set for myself. And that's a way of God reminding me that I fall short. There are times in my life where I am stuck in a spiritual, terrible two mentality. And then I say, God, I know you sent your son for me, but me do. And God says, even me do's, you're not good by me do standards. And oh, how we fall short because that will not satisfy. Me do lives will never satisfy. So let me kind of point this now to where we are going to spend the rest of our time. Me do mentalities have a lot 
parallels with our finances. Where do we live? What nation are we in? America, right? America. What is the most influential nation in the world? America. Which nation has more wealth than any nation in the world? America. We come by it naturally. I thank God I live in America. I thank God that he has blessed this nation and that he has given us his grace to be a light to the nations. But we need to know by living in America, we have natural tendencies and struggles. You say, well, how do we know that? Okay, let me give you an instance. I was born a Mississippi State fan, and I will die. You can give up. I will die a Mississippi State fan. But I naturally know this. Because I'm a Mississippi State fan, I am inherently, I have an inherent inferiority complex. Every day of my life, I think, what is going to go wrong? Because something is going to go wrong. That's just natural. Some of you have grown up crimson fans. And most of you naturally have a superiority complex. So let me just say this. Winning as much as you do is not natural. Okay? Enjoy it. It is not your God-given birthright. And it's not going to last for eternity. Enjoy it. So just know you need to be humbled. And you need to encourage those on the other end of the spectrum that struggle. Okay? That's natural. And so the same is with us who live in affluent societies. We naturally struggle with wealth because society, our Western society, teaches us we get identity and purpose in our bank accounts and in our careers. So how do we live a life that honors Christ? And uh, we're going to look at that today. So I ask you, what is your fortress? What is your me do today? What is that? So let's look at a gospel-centered um, economic. This is what Jesus does. He's now evaluated himself. This man represents many of us. He's living a me do life. And Jesus says, let's ignore the things you think you don't do well. And let's really address the issue. Here's the issue. Verse 21. Jesus says, if you want to be perfect... Uh, What was the guy's question? What must I do to have eternal life? So Jesus knows that the question he's asking is not really the question he needs. So some of us have come this morning with questions we think we have of God, and those aren't the real questions. The question is, for him, is, God, I built a fortress in my life, and wealth is my God. And Jesus says, well, let's talk about that. Commandment, that's the first commandment, by the way. Jesus said, go sell your belongings and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Listen to the cure for the man's epidemic. If the altar call today was this, if you want to be saved, sell everything you have. Come to the altar and follow him. How many of us 
would go away sad because we are not willing to leave with only Jesus? That's a tough question, isn't it? That's a question I've been asking all week. Would I be? Because we just think, well, he's a king. This is a sultan. He has billions of dollars. Of course he can't. No, this is a middle-class church dude. But Lord, that's me. That's not good, right? So Lord, if you ask me, if, 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 Lord, you ask me to, and some of you are saying, well, he would never ask us that. Ah, what if he did? What if he did? So how do we live a life that radically shaped by the gospel? Here's, here's the struggle of this man. Um, Jesus asked him to do something that no Jewish law asked of people. Actually, Jewish laws forbid. Jesus is asking the man to do something that Jewish law outlawed. Right there in the Babylonian Talmud, it said you could not give more than 20% to charity. You have to look out for yourself. So Jesus is doing something that tradition says is not okay. Um, church people, pay attention to that. Jesus is doing something that church tradition says is not okay. I know we would never think like that anymore. And Jesus says, give everything. Jesus knows his struggle. Now, I know what you were thinking. Some of you are thinking, here we go. Pastor's asking. Pastor, here we go. He's asking for money again. Here's the problem. Jesus doesn't want to reach into your wallet. God does not need your money. How foolish of us to think, God, you know, you, you, God you're, you're struggling right now. Let me give to you. God wants to reach into our hearts, not our wallets. But here's our problem. Most of us have come in here like this, right? And we say, God, you, you just want my wallet. And God says, no, but I'm going to have to remove your wallet to get to your heart. And how many of us, and we don't want to admit this, but we built a fortress and security in our wealth. And I'm reminded constantly at funerals, one day I'm going to have nothing but Jesus Christ and him alone. So how do we live out a Christ-centered work ethic? And you say, well, I don't have a struggle with that. Yes, you do. Um, 90% of Americans buy things they cannot afford. Um, that means most of us. 90% buy things they cannot afford. Us. 83% of Americans do not have enough to cover emergency. You know why that's a struggle? Because when we get in emergencies, we are stressed out. But God doesn't want you to be in debt to your eyeballs, living a life where others think you're something. God wants you to have no debt. That way you can cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. The Bible says debt is foolish. It doesn't say it's a sin, but you know what? I don't want, you, I don't want to live a foolish life either. That's just practical advice. And 15%, every eight times that Jesus speaks, he's talking about money. You know why? Because this is the way we live. So how do we live Christ-centered, generous lives? Uh, we, first is this. Money, possessions, and wealth will grip our hearts more than anything. Money, wealth, and possessions will grip our hearts more than anything. Why do I say that? Where do we live? America. What's the most prosperous nation in the world? America. Where am I thankful that God has planted me and birthed me? America. But we need to know we have a natural desire to find security and strength in the stuff that we have. 
That's why we call it possessions. Now, let's unpack that word really quick. The word possession has three meanings. Here's the word, here's the meaning of the word possession. Um, it can mean a state of having or owning something. So if you own something, it's a possession. It can mean an item of property. Uh, you know what the third meaning of possession is? Okay, here it is. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. The state of being controlled by a demon or a spirit. Now think about that. How many, we have a lot of possessions, don't we? And if they, can, if they consume us, they are spiritually unclean and they will lead us in paths of destruction. So how can we live gospel-centered, generous lives? We need to say daily, God, help me because I know my stuff has a tendency to possess me. And, or just consume our time. If you have a house, you have to keep it up. If you have a house with grass, guess what you have to do? You have to mow it. And then you know what you do? You, you fertilize the grass to make it green so it'll grow. And you water the grass to make it green so it'll grow. So you have to mow it. And that's not ungodly. It's just a cycle. So be careful. Get up every day and say, God, I know my possessions want to possess me. Let me give them to you. We have much. Our hearts should be possessed by Christ alone. A second fundamental truth for our lives is this. The Lord wants me to give from my first, not my leftovers. God wants us to give from our first, not our leftovers. You say, well, I don't see that in here. Um, why should I listen? Genesis 4.4. And Abel presented an offering some of the first of his flock and their fat portions. And we know that the offering of Abel, one of the first offerings to God of the first fruits, was accepted, and Cain's was not, and Cain killed Abel. Because his offering was not accepted. Why? Because it was not from the first. Think about when you go out to dinner or when you invite people over to your house to eat, who do you let go first? The guest of honor. We should be first givers, first fruit to the Lord. That which has priority in my life is first. Will you commit today to be a first fruit giver? That's a spiritual principle. God, let me give to you first. And then, God, I will trust you for everything else. We see this also. Not only should we remind ourselves that our possessions will possess us, not only do we need to say, God, I want to give of you First, not last, not God, if there's something else at the end, I'll give it to you. But God, I trust you, so I will give to you first. But giving is essential for spiritual growth. Giving is essential for spiritual growth. You say, well, how do you know that? Look at verse 22. The young man heard Jesus. He went away grieving because he had many possessions. This young man understood that giving is essential for the kingdom of God. Mm. That's hard, isn't it? Which means if I'm not giving like I should, I'm not growing like I should. And maybe the reason I don't give is because I don't understand the grace of God. We're talking about tithing later. Don't worry, we're getting there. We're not even talking about that yet. But maybe I don't give because I am selfish. Giving is essential for spiritual growth. If we are not giving, we are not growing. Giving is the vaccination to selfishness and idolatry in my life. 
It's hard for my possessions to possess me when I give them away. And that's a truth that just that has freed me up recently. I remember my grandfather telling my dad years ago, he said, son, and I thought my dad was old and crotchety when he told me this. I'm like, yeah, I get it, dad. You walk two miles in the snow in South Mississippi. There's only snow there. You know, I get it. His, his grandfather, my grandfather told my dad, son, be careful. Your possessions will possess you. I'm like, what does he know? And then I open up God's word. I'm like, ugh. Jesus says that if I'm not giving, I'm not growing. Spiritual growth is tied to my giving, and my giving helps contentment. When I give away, it's easier for me to say, God, I'm content, and I'm so content with who you have made me and created me to be. God, if you take everything, if I gave everything today, I will still say I can do all things in Christ who gives me strength. Because, Lord, you brought me in with nothing, not even clothes. God, you're going to take me home with nothing, and I will be content. And we live in the most discontent nation in the world. And we have the most stuff of any nation in the world. God, help us. And lastly, we should give intentionally, consistently, and abundantly. We need to give consistently, intentionally, and abundantly. He said, well, how, how do we know that? What's the model prayer for Christ in our life? He says this. This is how you should pray. God, give us when our daily bread. Give us today. We don't pray, God, when you get around to it, right? You could be hit or miss. God, just give me some bread. No, we expect God to be an intentional daily giver. And God wants us to model the same. So in the Old Testament, a standard of giving was the tithe. It was 10%. It was actually more than that. It was 10% of everything. Uh, but those for, for who know Jesus Christ now, tithing is not a place to stop. It's a place to start. You say, tithing, is that, that's a lot, 10%. Well, we keep, we, God's giving us 90. He could give us nothing. And he's still God. He's still good. And so first, I, I want you to know, don't think, if you are not giving consistently, begin to pray now and say, God, help me give consistently. I only have a dollar. I'll give a dollar consistently. Give intentionally and give purposely. And for me, the Bible standard of a tithe is not a stopping point. Because I don't want to ask God, God, show me the fewest, the least I can give to you. It's a starting point. And so we've committed as a family, we want that to be a start for us. We want to give 10% of everything that God gives us, we're going to give away. And that's not always easy, but that builds trust like nothing we have ever experienced. And this church, I want you to know, we give 10% of everything that's given to this church, we give away. We want to be a giving, generous church, not a self-serving church. And are you a generous, giving person? The more we understand the grace of Jesus Christ, the more generous you become. The more you understand the grace of Jesus Christ, the more generous you become. Are you a generous person? That is a gospel economic. I want to come full circle today with the question the man asked originally. We never have an answer. We don't have an answer for it. Um, in verse 16, Jesus, someone comes up to him and asks, um, teacher, a word of a non-disciple. Teacher, 
What must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus' answer is just give it all away, dude. I know you have a lot of stuff, but that's going to be burned in the fire anyway. And just give it away. And he went away grieving. But that's not the answer that Jesus gives us. He said, I don't have to give anything, no. The answer is found in John chapter 19. The question is, what must I do? God, me do. What must I do to have eternal life? And here's the one word answer that Jesus gives us in John 19.30. It's the word in Greek, tetelestai. Tetelestai. And the word translated into English is this. It is finished. We come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, me do. What must I do for eternal life? And Jesus says, here's what you must do. It is finished. The word telos is a word that used in the religious world to mean a religious fulfillment. We come to Jesus and say, Jesus, what must we do? And Jesus says, you don't understand. You can't. I did. What a beautiful truth that is to know that it is finished. And we see that the young man went away grieving because he had much. Some of you are sad today because you have a lot. And you're worried that Jesus is going to grab a hold of your pocketbook. Jesus doesn't care about your wallet. That thing's going to be nothing sooner rather than later. But if you have built a fortress around your heart with your money and with your stuff and with your possessions, Jesus will remove that to get to your heart. And if you're grieving here today because you have a lot, you're grieving not because you have much, you're grieving because you don't want to let go. And if you're grieving here today, I pray that you would come to the altar and give that today. Because you have come in and you said, teacher, teach me something good. And Jesus says, no, you don't understand. I'm master. Submit to me. Are you a generous person? You say, well, of course, I tithe. You can tithe and not be generous. Because if you say, Lord, just, to, just show me the minimum. I want to reach that bar and I will stop. God says, oh, the, the more you understand my grace, the more you will give. And I firmly believe this. If I sold everything today and gave everything away, that I could stand before you and say, I am so richly favored by God. And I have no worldly possessions, but it is finished. Maybe you're here today and you don't really understand what that means. I want to share one verse and then give you three truths. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved you. And you say, you know what? I don't even love God. I don't care. He doesn't care right now. He, he sent his son when we were enemies. Ephesians 2 says that while we were dead in our trespasses and we were sons of disobedience, right? we were holy terrorists, that when we were sons of disobedience, Christ loved us. Do you know him personally? 
You say, I don't, I don't believe in God, but he loves you. He died for you. He sent his son to give you life. And maybe you're here today and you say, well, well I, I want that. What does it look like? I want you to know that the price has already been paid. The gift of salvation in Jesus Christ has been given. And if you will repent, if you will turn from yourself and submit to him, he will give you new life today. And would this be the day that you truly know God as master and not teacher? And would this truly be the day today that you find everything you're looking for at the cross of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father.